Well, hey there, my name is Eric Gray, and I'm the Young Adult and Family Minister here at the Regency Church of Christ. I just want to take a minute and say thank you for checking out this message. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. And to find out more information about Regency or to listen to other messages from this series, we'd love for you to check out our website at regencycc.org. And we're praying that this message will help you grow closer to Jesus. Well, I'm I'm sure it's happened to you before. Maybe it was during your break time at work or at school. Maybe it was early in the afternoon when you feel that post-lunch drag that we all go through. Maybe it was early in the morning and you wanted a little pick-me-up. And so you go to the vending machine at work or at school and you put your money in and you press the button, and nothing happens. And you press it again, and it doesn't kick out your Coke, and so you press it like 27 times as hard as you can, nothing. Or worse, you go to the vending machine that's got all the snacks, and you put your money in, you just want a Snickers because you've gotten a little bit hangry, and the commercials say that you know, you're not yourself when you're hungry, and so you just want a, a little bit of food, even though it's not really nutrients, you just want something sweet, to satisfy your craving, you put your money in and the little whirly wheel turns and it begins to release your candy bar and right at the last second, like the smallest amount of material on that wrapper gets caught and there your future hangs in the vending machine. And so you do what any normal person would do. You kick that thing and shove it as hard as you can and you're making a scene and you're shaking it And everybody's watching you, and they all understand, because we've all been there. We know what it's like, that when you expect something to happen, it doesn't. It gets you a little frustrated. Have you ever thought about that sometimes we look at prayer as like a spiritual vending machine, as something that we put something in and we expect something in return? Well, that's what I want us to think about tonight. But before we get there, we're finishing up this study of the book of James. And originally I was supposed to cover James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. And I thought there's just no way we would have been here for a couple of hours in order for us to do that. And I thought you were probably ready to go to lunch. And so I figured we'd cover the rest of it tonight. Finish out verses uh, 13 through verses 20 of the letter of James. But I want us to kind of take a minute to remind ourselves of where we have been through this study. So you probably remember from this morning, if you were here, that this letter opens up. James is writing to this group of people who have been scattered. They have been kicked out of their communities. Even if they haven't been kicked out of their community, many of them have been ostracized by their community. They've suffered physical harm, emotional harm. Uh, They've been fired from their jobs. They're dealing with relational issues because they have broken from the norm. Many of them have left or have moved on from their Jewish faith, and now they're claiming allegiance to Jesus. Many others have left a pagan form of religion, and now they're claiming their allegiance to Jesus. And it's shaking up the whole world. People don't know what to do. And so James writes a letter. It's really a general letter, not addressed to any particular group of Christians except the diaspora, the scattered, the exiles, those who were living in a suffering state. And this letter was intended to be uh, circulated amongst many different churches and communities. And it's really all-encompassing in the scope of this letter. We've studied a lot of different ideas from this book. 
It's been said, I think Alan mentioned when we opened up this series, that this is one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. And as you go through it, what you hear are echoes of the Sermon on the Mount and of different teachings of Jesus over and over and over again. That it's really about faith. Here's what faith looks like when it's lived out. Or as we have said, faith in the real world. Real faith for the real world. And so you can read through this book and find so many applications for your life. Well, as we get to the close, as we talked about this morning, James is writing to remind us, just hold on, just wait. Jesus is coming and let's live today as though his coming and his return were today. Well, he closes the letter with a really interesting conversation. The idea behind it is a call to community changing prayer. Let's read James chapter 5 verses 13 through 20 together. Is, any, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, that's not a reference to essential oils. It's just merely an idea of bringing some kind of medicine to help alleviate whatever sickness is going on. The Lord will raise, uh, excuse me, the prayer offered in faith will make the person sick, that will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So seven times in six verses, the word prayer is mentioned. So I think we can take that to understand this section of Scripture is about prayer. And here's the big idea, big idea that we're going to unpack tonight. Prayer is not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. It's not a button to be pushed. It's a, it's a relationship to be pursued. So prayer is not a vending machine. But if I'm honest, and if you're honest, we would probably have to admit that many times in our life, maybe even regularly, we treat prayer as though it's a vending machine. I got a test coming up, and I want to do well on it, so what do I do? I pray, right? I, I want this job, or I want to get this promotion, so what do I do? I pray. I'm not sure how I'm going to pay this bill. What do I do? I pray. Somebody just pulled, right, pulled out right in front of me, slammed on their brakes, and then turned. What do I do? I pray that God gives them a flat tire or a dead battery. Okay, I'm just kidding. Don't pray that. That's only, that's only something that I pray. Just kidding. Try not to. If we view prayer as a button to be pushed when we need something, we are simply setting ourselves up for disappointment. Because what happens when that prayer isn't answered? It's like putting your money into the vending machine and you push the button and nothing happens. Or when your prayer is answered, but it's in a way that you didn't pray for that you prayed for the job or the promotion, and you lost your job. And you're like, wait a minute, I asked for a Snickers, and it gave me a Reese's. That's, that's not what I wanted. Or what about when you feel distant from God? You don't even feel this closeness with God, and you don't even know, does God even hear my prayers right now? Are my prayers even doing anything? Should I even pray? And let's be honest, many times our prayers are selfishly motivated. We're filling our prayers with things that we need. I don't know how your prayers start or what 
they generally are composed of. But I know myself, I find myself praying about things that I need or that I want or that I want God to do. But there's some kind of selfish motivation there. I love this line from Soren Kierkegaard who said this, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Sometimes when we pray, we're asking God, God, do this, please do this, please do this. God, I will do this if you will do this. And it's almost like we're trying to manipulate him. But if we can manipulate God, then he's not God. God needs to do what God needs to do. And my prayer life should not be about gaining more favor so that God will do what I want him to do, but rather my prayer life become his will becoming my will. Did you know that the word pray literally means to exchange wishes? The idea behind it is that we're taking what we want and what we desire and we're swapping it out for what God wants and what God desires. And that when we get to that next level of prayer, that begins to take place. That what I want is not nearly as important as what God wants. And so what I find is that I shouldn't pray as much about what I want, but God, what do you want in this situation? I want to exchange my desires and my will for yours. I want this prayer to manipulate me. I want it to pull my desires deeper into the Lord because prayer is not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. A relationship to be pursued. Could you imagine having a relationship with someone who only calls you when they want something or need something? Many of you can. It's called having children, right? (laughs) That sometimes they call out your name and based on the way they call your name, you already know what the situation is. That my children will say, Daddy, and depending on the tone, I already know if they want me to do something for them or if something's wrong. I can tell between the two tones because they're never the same. And, And so you know what it's like for someone to need something from you on a regular basis. But it doesn't bother you. Well, maybe sometimes it inconveniences you. But you don't go, oh, these terrible children. What am I gonna do with you? That there's joy there because there's a relationship there. Yes, they need things from you, but there's a relationship because you held them when you were babies. When they, excuse me, when they were babies. You changed their diapers. When they took their first steps, you went crazy and screamed and videoed and posted it on Facebook for all the world to see. You cheered them on at baseball games. You helped them to learn words and sentences. You drove them to school and picked them up from school. You tucked them into bed at night. And you've done all of these things for them. And there's a relationship there. So when they ask for something, you're not inconvenienced. You're not going, ah, what am I going to do with these needy kids? You love them. And you're grateful for those opportunities. Because it's not long after that that your kids, probably like mine, they come snuggling up with you in your chair and you just sit and maybe watch TV or talk about the day or you go to tuck them in at night and you just lay there with them in bed for a few minutes and you just have those quiet, intimate moments with them or you're riding in the car and you have a great conversation or you have a memory maybe on a vacation or on a trip or maybe uh, you know at the grocery store or something that just links, it just strengthens your bond because you're pursuing a relationship together. And you know that part of that relationship is doing things for them. That's how God views us. But if they got to the point where they were ungrateful or only communicated with you because they wanted or needed something, and you never heard from them any other time, you'd begin to wonder what's going on. 
Or imagine walking up to a random stranger that you met on the street or that you met at the store and you're like, hey, later would you possibly be able to come over to my house, gather all the garbage in my cans and empty it and then take it outside and put it in the big can and then roll that can out to the road? Could you do that for me? They'd probably look at you as though you have lost your mind because they're thinking, who do you think I am? But when you ask someone in your family to do that, while they probably look at you that way, you generally have that relationship because... We're pursuing relationships together. Here's what Matt Chandler said. Prayer is not just a duty. It's a delight and a gift for the people of God to commune with their adopting, loving, merciful Father. That's the goal of our prayer life. It's to grow in our relationship, in our intimacy with God, our merciful Father. Here's what John says in 1 John 5. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now let's talk about this. What does this mean if we ask according to His will? God isn't sifting through your prayer requests with a yes or no stamp. Uh, yes, I'll grant that one. No, I will not grant that one. Selfishly motivated? No. To holy and righteous? Yes. God isn't working through our prayer requests that way. His will for us is for our flourishing. That he, His will for us is that we live the life that He has called us to, that He's laid out for us because He knows us best. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but one of God's greatest gifts to us is not in giving us everything that we have ever asked for. Garth Brooks sung the, you know, sang the song that I thank God for unanswered prayers. And if you have any kind of years or experience behind you, you've probably amened that line. I thank God all of the time for unanswered prayers. Just think about for a moment, if for those of you that have children, you gave them everything that they asked from you for one day. 24 hours, you will never use the word no. Now, this is a dangerous play here, okay? Because just imagine all the things that they're going to ask of you to do. Now, you have to keep in mind that, you know, if they say, can we go on an exotic vacation today? Well, obviously that's not in the realm of possibilities. But anything that you can dream of that we can realistically do, you can do it. And so they wake up in the morning, they ask for ice cream for breakfast, right? And then, you know, an hour later, it's a bunch of candy, right? And then it's lunchtime. What do you want for lunch? Let's go pizza. All right, let's go pizza. A little bit more candy a little bit later. All the sodas they want. Dinner time. Let's go pizza and ice cream one more time just for the fun of it. Later that night, they're going to be sick as a dog, right? Their stomach is going to be so messed up. And they might just look at you and go, what did you do to me? And you're like, I didn't do anything to you. I gave you everything you asked for. You did this to yourself. No. You had the power to tell me no, right? And all of a sudden, what you thought was a gift actually became their worst nightmare. One of God's greatest gifts is actually giving, is not giving us everything that we ask for. Getting told no can be a great gift. What Paul wrote to Timothy was this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they might take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Remind the rich, those who are rich in this world, to be generous, to share what they have with others, to be rich in good works. That's the context of this verse. But I love this line that when they do that, they will lay up for themselves this treasure, this foundation for this coming age, the life that is truly life. Life. I love the line from William Wallace from Braveheart that said, 
all men die, but not all men live, right? Not everybody is living. And, and the sad reality is many people think they are living and they're not. That this idea of living it up is not living. It's actually death on display. That the true living is the life that God has called us to. And that when we live God's way, it's actually the greatest way to live. And it's not just because of all of the negative spiritual consequences, but just normal physical consequences that come from all of the things that can go wrong when we don't live God's way. Let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate what I'm talking about. Think about sex. That is something that has been perverted in our world beyond all imagination. It's been elevated and our sexuality has been elevated to a level that is unhealthy. It's become who we are and God never intended our sexuality to be who we are. It is a part of us, but it's not the whole of us. And this idea of sex has become so elevated in our society that it's the ultimate pleasure that you should pursue. The problem is, is that God created that to be enjoyed within the relationship of a covenant marriage. And that when enjoyed in the relationship of a covenant marriage, it's actually the greatest way that you can experience the greatest form of physical intimacy that God ever created. And when anyone partakes of that and participates in that outside of a covenant marriage relationship, all it does is creates damage. It damages relationships. It damages the individual. It causes emotional damage, psychological damage, and even health-related damage. But yet it's been elevated to a level that in our culture is simply unhealthy. But when we stick with God's plan, we're able to enjoy the gift that he's given us in the greatest way possible. Think about when we lie. When we have that moment that we got to decide, am I going to tell the truth? And if I tell the truth here, all the consequences are going to play out. So therefore, I'm going to lie so that I can avoid the consequences, which how many times does that actually work out? Well, not very often, right? But when we lie, we complicate our life so much because now not only do I have to remember this lie, but I got to remember the one that's coming after that because now my story is not right and I got to keep this not right story going forward. And the next thing you know, you're caught up in a web of lies and you go, what in the world is going on? And it's not long before you're busted and you think, why? Why did I lie in the first place? It's because when we, when we complicate our life, we destroy our relationships. We lose our credibility. Think about when our life's goal is to accumulate possessions. Our lives become controlled by it. And we can't enjoy the simplicity of just living. Think about when you refuse to forgive someone. That something's gone on in your life and you're like, I'm not going to let that go. I will not forgive them. What actually happens is we become enslaved to that individual and to the event that happened. And we give that person control over our life. A very wise mentor in my life once told me, be careful who you give the right to control your life. Be careful who you give that right to. Oh, and that's so true. And when I refuse to forgive, I'm giving you the right to control me because now I'm going to avoid the places that you might be or we're going to have to figure this out and, and we're both living in captivity or maybe you've forgotten about it and moved on and I'm still dealing with it because I won't let it go. And I'm just living in a cage because when I live God's way, it's freedom. It really is the greatest way. Those are just four examples that you can find just within the Ten Commandments. You keep reading through God's law and you read through the New Testament and what you find is that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, leads you into the greatest way to live.
Because if you look at Jesus, would you admit that he was the greatest individual to ever live? That he didn't live in captivity to anyone other than his service to God. And then he didn't worry about what everybody was thinking about him. And he didn't have to worry about what lie have I told and what, what do I have to do to manipulate people now. He just lived and loved people. And so our prayer life should not be about trying to manipulate God or to get him to grant us three wishes as though he's our little genie in the bottle. Our prayer life should change us, that it should pull us into his will, pull us deeper into his heart. And as we read through the scriptures and we read different laws and and restrictions that he's placed over us, or as we read different things that go against what our culture says, and we go, I don't know what to think about this. Dive into that in prayer. God, what's your will here? What's your will for my life? God, how are you using this to lead me into greater freedom? That's the goal of prayer, because prayer is not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. James uses an interesting example to illustrate the power of prayer. He uses the illustration, the example of Elijah. Now, I don't know how much Old Testament history, and I don't know how much you know about Elijah, but he's a fascinating character. I I believe there's a reason why he picks Elijah. He could have picked a lot of people. There were a lot of people in in, in the Old Testament who prayed. Why does he pick Elijah? Let's do a little background on Elijah here. First off, he says Elijah was a human just like us. What he means is Elijah had desires just like you and me. All right, I like that. He's a normal person. He was not a superhuman. Now, he performed some amazing miracles, but he was a regular individual. And I think you're going to see that as his story plays out. So Elijah announces as a prophet of God, there's going to be a multi-year drought. Now, we've been in like a 20-day drought, but we've had rain the last two days. We're all like, thank you, don't have to water the grass or don't have to watch the grass die anymore. Plants are receiving life, right? Imagine a three and a half year drought. And imagine that you're the one who announces that. You're not going to be everybody's best friend. And so Elijah has dealt with a lot of flack. He's dealt with a lot of issues. There's some people who are really upset with him. And rather than blaming God, guess who they blame? They blame Elijah because he's the one that caused it to happen. Well, during this drought, he's living in the wilderness, probably because he's hated by all of his neighbors, and God feeds him bread and meat every day with ravens coming to bring him these items. Well, at some point, he makes his way to this widow's house that we only know her as the widow of Zarephath. And he asks her, he says, would you please make me something to eat? And she says, we barely have enough flour and oil to make us our last meal. In fact, we're probably just going to make us one last meal and then we're going to starve to death. And Elijah says, just do it. And so she makes him some bread. And she goes back the next day and there's more flour and oil. And she makes some more for her and her only son and Elijah. And she goes back the next day and it's miraculously replenished itself. It doesn't tell us how long this happens, but for days and days and days, maybe weeks, maybe months, it just continues to miraculously appear until one day her son suffers an illness and dies. And you had to be thinking, this woman's going, why, God? Maybe even Elijah's going, God, (laughs) this doesn't make sense. And he raises this young man from the dead, and she continues to serve him faithfully. And then he leaves, and he makes his way to Mount Carmel. And at Mount Carmel, he has this showdown with 450 prophets of Baal, a false god, 450 against one. And they have this showdown. They build these altars. Let's see whose God 
Israel. And so they build their altar and they start dancing and shouting and cutting themselves. And Elijah has some fun with them. Maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's old and can't hear you and nothing happens. And so then Elijah builds his altar and he has them cover it with water. He digs a trench around it, fills the trench with water, and then he prays. And he says, God, reveal your glory today. And God sends fire down from heaven. It consumes the altar. It dries up all the water. The people are amazed because the God of Israel has demonstrated himself that he is alive and real. They kill the 450 prophets of Baal. They get all of the idols out of the land of Israel. And the next thing you know, it starts raining. And the people are rejoicing. And Elijah starts running. And he runs out of town and he runs all the way to this cave in Mount Horeb, many miles away. And he's hiding. And God shows up and God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, all have forsook you. I'm the only one that's left. God, just kill me now. What? Like, I don't know if Elijah read 1 Kings chapter 18, but there's some pretty amazing stuff that happened to him in there. I mean, there's no way he forgot what God just did. God just defeated it and demonstrated himself over all the 450 prophets of Baal. And you telling me that God can't protect you from this mean woman named Jezebel? And Elijah says, God, just kill me now. Take me out of this world. Now when you read James 5, and it says Elijah was a man just like us, do you ever experience a roller coaster of emotions? One day are you on top of the world, and the next day you're low down in the valley? That one week life is going great, and the next week it's all falling apart. That Just like that, life has changed. And where you were praising God, now you're accusing God or blaming God or going, God, what's going on here? And it happened in just a moment. Because Elijah was a man just like us. He experienced emotions. He experienced doubt. He wondered, God, what's, what's going on? But he also trusted God. And in his prayer, he prayed for God to be glorified. And I believe that's one of the greatest goals of our prayer life is that through all we pray what Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. And so prayer is a relationship that we should pursue as we go deeper into the heart of God. But it's something that we're called to do together. Remember, this is written to a community of exiles, the letter of James is. That everything that James writes to us, we should do together. That as a community of believers, we should be locked into one another. We should grow closer together. That we become more like a family each and every day. That we're pursuing a relationship with the Lord together. And so he says, if you're sick... Let them pray. But the idea is that you're not praying alone. You're praying with a community. And so if you're sick, if you're in the hospital, we're all coming. You better make some room. I know they usually only like two or three visitors, but you know what? This is a different community of faith. We're all coming to the hospital. We're all coming to see you. If you're struggling, we're coming to your house. We're going to pick you up. We're going to bring you some food. We're going to bring you some encouragement. You get the promotion, we're all going out to eat to celebrate. You're probably buying because you just got a raise, but we're all going out to dinner, right? If you're struggling with with sin, we all understand. We get it. There's no judgment here. There's nobody sitting in the pew when you say, I've really been struggling with this. And we go, oh, shame, shame, shame. What Jesus teach on that? You who are without sin, throw the first stone. Well, all of us are dropping rocks like crazy, right? That we are pursuing the Lord together. You walk away from the Lord, 
you turn your back on Jesus and, and walk away from him, we're coming to find you. We're going to be like a mob and come get you. But we're going to be a mob filled with love. But we are coming for you and we will not stop until you have changed your life and come back to the Lord. That we will be relentless in our pursuit of you because we will not let you walk away from the Lord because we're waiting on him together. The point that James is making is that as a local body of believers, we're walking together, pulling together in our pursuit of the Lord, praying together for God's glory to be seen through all the world. So I've got a challenge for us this week. Two things. First one is this. Pray often. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I don't know how often you pray, but I guarantee you this. We can all pray more often than we currently are. You can't over-communicate to God. And it doesn't have to just be long times of prayer. Those are good. Whether it's on your drive to work or your drive home, whether you get up early in the night or early before you go to work, whether you stay up late at night, whether you find some time during your lunch break, find that time. But also think about those short, what I've heard called breath prayers. Those prayers that you just kind of mumble under your breath to find short moments of reminders and strength that one of your coworkers says something to you, kind of gets you off a little bit and you just want to naturally react. So you just pray, God, ooh, take care of that emotion right there. I need some help. Somebody cuts you off and you're like, Lord, I need some patience right now. Driving through the streets of Mobile is just, whoo, it is something else. Or, you know, you're getting ready to walk into the door of the house and you've had one of those days that you're so tempted to bring work home with you and take it out on everybody else. And right before you walk through the door, you're like, God, grant me grace. I need some strength right now. I need to let this go. God, help me to be present right now. You have a conversation with one of your family members or coworkers, and they're really struggling with something, and you say, I'll be praying for you. Like right then as you're walking away, right there in your mind as you walk, you're just spending some time talking to the Lord about that person. That we increase our frequency in, in conversing with God. But here's the second thing. I really want you to pay attention to your prayers this week. Pay attention to what you're praying about. Are you pushing buttons on a vending machine? Are you saying, God, I want this. I need this. God, I need you to do this for me or for this person. Or are you pursuing a deeper relationship with the Lord? Are you seeking his glory above all else? And are you trying to dive deeper into that relationship with him? That's our challenge. Pay attention to your prayer life this week. I love the line from the song, When We Pray by Torin Wells. He says, but what if we could be a people on our knees as one before the king because we believe. I love that line because the chorus then goes on to ask you to consider what would happen when God's people truly started praying, not just for God to do something for us, but for God to do something through us and for God to move amongst us as we're pursuing the Lord together. What if we truly Pray, not just for ourselves, not just for our needs, but for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the world, for God to be great through us. What if we truly prayed? What would happen? How would that change us as a church? How would that change you as an individual Christian? How would that change your relationships with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your spouse, with your children? How would that change your relationship with the Lord if you truly prayed? Not vending machine prayed, but pursuing the Lord praying. Tonight, if we can pray for you in any way, gather around you. If you're sick, struggling, need some encouragement, we just want to gather around you and pray over you and walk with you and encourage you.
If you want to put Jesus on in baptism, you want to make him the Lord of your life and repent of your sins and have your sins washed away, then we'd love to assist you in that as well. If you'll make your way to the front as we stand and sing this song.